Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation Capital, a pre-seed venture firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season is sponsored by our friends at Silicon Valley Bank, a member of the FDIC. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. Learn more about Silicon Valley Bank services at svb.com. Tom Lenahan is Deputy Chief Investment Officer at the Rockefeller University, helping to manage all aspects of the $1.8 billion endowment. Previously, he was at Common Fund Capital, where he primarily focused on manager commitments on behalf of endowment and foundation clients in private equity, venture capital, and natural resources sectors. Before that, he worked for San Francisco-based Vista Equity Partners. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. We're unbelievably excited. You are the first person that we've had on the podcast that is managing investments on behalf of a university endowment. So we're really, really thrilled to have thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And you're based in New York, which is an extra bonus. Always a plus. (laughs) Uh, Very exciting. So I guess to start, it would just be great to hear just a a quick history of of your background and what what led you ultimately to, to Rockefeller University today. Sure. So in 1999, uh, like all good uh, uh, private equity folks at that time, they, they, they decided, or at least I decided, to uh, try my hand at venture capital. Right. So I picked up my, uh, my pick and my shovel and headed out west uh, for the next great gold rush. Was that, was that indeed uh, a massive trend in 99, specifically private equity folks trying to get into the venture capital business? I think it was all of the above. I think it was okay. lots of different folks from right. consulting, right. from investment right. banking, uh, a lot of different places. And and I remember one of my classmates from Stanford in 1996, for her summer job, she went to go work at a company that none of us had ever heard of and thought uh, she was crazy. And it was called Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that. <laughs> and uh, we're all the crazy ones. Heard of that one. <laughs> uh, but that was really kind of end of the 90s, you know, the mm. whole bubble, that was really the start of, you know, called Internet 2.0, where folks actually could get really good jobs. There was a lot more applications out right. there. There was a lot of other things that were happening. Uh, while I was at, at, at Marsh McLennan Capital, I had invested in a company called Innsweb, which was one of the very first comparison shopping mm. sites that if you were an individual, you could shop for um, personal insurance, whether it be auto or homeowners or even life mm-hmm. insurance and compare quotes across several different companies. So Progressive kind of owns that market today. Mm. You see a lot of great commercials about that. Allstate, um, uh, they bought a company called Insurance, and you'll see a lot of theirs, mm-hmm. those commercials. But this was kind of before all that happened, kind of helped spawn that. That company went public. Uh, and you were an angel well. investor in that company. I, I guess it would be angel. Right, right. <laughs> Back then, I don't think that term really existed. Sure. It was kind of either Series A or, or nothing. In hindsight. That's right. All right. That's right. Um, but that was in conjunction with um, – uh, with with a couple other different uh, industry partners. Yep. And uh, that was one that was a very quick turnaround. In a couple of years, uh, we kind of made multiple times our money. And so me personally, I thought, wow, this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> so I headed yeah. out west and I joined yeah. uh, a, a small, at that time, a small uh, venture capital firm called Financial Technology Ventures or FTV Capital. Okay. 
uh, they they changed their name now. Okay. Um, based in San Francisco, and and they invested strictly in venture for financial services. So that mm-hmm. financial service theme kind of ran throughout. Mm-hmm. And given my experience with uh, not only with Goldman but also with Insweb in particular, and, and SoftBank was actually one of the early investors in Insweb. So again, this is when okay. SoftBank really started to kind of become a household name for a lot of different folks. Uh, they hired me, and I was there. I started work. I remember vividly. It was. Um, uh, April 15th of, uh, of 2000, which mm. happened to coincide with the first kind of mini crash right. back. Mm, right. wow. <laughs> and then it kind of crashed, you know, for the next, you know, year. And I learned a very valuable lesson, which I think really helps, you know, kind of where I am today was that I am, uh, uh I am not a good venture capitalist <laughs> mm. and I don't fundamentally understand, you know, the actual technology it was never an engineer, mm. uh, uh, never understood how, how the thing actually works and was tasked with trying to distinguish between 20 different companies that all claim to do the same thing. Right. Uh, and I couldn't uh, understand. Pick the winner. Pick, yeah, which one was going to actually survive. And, and, and it turns out none of them did. Uh, but but neither here nor there, that was uh, a very tough time right. where I really felt, for the first time in my career, felt really uncomfortable. Like there was a fundamental distance between mm. um, uh, the the technology that was being created and, and my ability to try to pick mm. the winners. So that was so thankfully- went from going really- from really easy to really hard pretty quickly. <laughs> I would say it was ever, ever very easy, right. but it was certainly right. um, you know, where I felt more comfortable. Right. Uh, and so that was about 18 months. That lasted until right. about mm. the middle of 2001. And, and at that time, got religion and said, okay, I, I need to go back to, to kind of my comfort zone. Yeah. And that's when I went to Vista Equity Partners, mm-hmm. which was more traditional private equity investing. Um, it did have a, a technology bent to it. They, yeah. they focused primarily on software and business services, but much more um, buyout-related. So there actually are revenues Yep. Uh, there are EBITDA. There's there's profits that you can analyze and and uh, and customers you can talk to. So that that felt um, much more in my comfort zone. So that was a, that was a big transition back to that part of my career. I did that for about five years, and then in 2005, uh, found my way back east in Connecticut to work mm. for Common Fund Capital. Right, and that was a a, a switch in my career from being a GP mm. to an LP. Right. And and Common Fund is a fund of funds. They 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 are somewhat of a hybrid where they're both a GP and an LP. Mm-hmm. So they raise money from clients like a Rockefeller University. Yep. Uh, and then they invest it on their behalf um, amongst other venture capital firms, private equity firms, natural resources firms. So they do kind of play a dual role. Yep. So so tell us about your current role at Rockefeller University, um, and uh, and how that how that came to be. Sure. So in 2005, when I joined Common Fund, um, I met an extraordinary person named Amy Falls. She had just um, spent a 16-year career at Morgan Stanley, working ultimately to become head of fixed income research for Morgan Stanley. And uh, she received, I guess, maybe a similar calling. Uh, Mm -hmm. She actually left uh, that world and became the first chief investment officer at Andover, where she went to high school. Um, a pretty large uh, endowment that had never had a dedicated team. And so she was uh, asked and, and kind of volunteered to be the very first. What were they CEO. doing previously? They were ruling the investments by committee. So they had a consultant that would help uh, okay. give them advice. And then they had a committee of um, of alums that would get together and, and decide. So she was the first person that they hired specifically to run the endowment. That's exactly time. right. Okay. And one of the first things that she did was she actually invested in a common fund venture product. Oh, okay. And so um, 
she came onto our advisory board, and that's when I actually first got to know her. It was in 2005. Got it. So fast forward six years, I got to see her at all the advisory board meetings and got a chance to really uh, establish a relationship with her. And she was one of the, in my mind, one of the few advisory board members who was just very thoughtful, would always push us on our thinking, um, would question convention, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and would never let us take anything for granted, and, and would also give us advice. It seems... Um, uh, strange that you would think that an advisory board wouldn't wouldn't all advisory board members right. give you advice, right. and and many of them don't. And so I thought actually she gave us incredibly valuable advice and insights uh, to think about as the world changes. In 2011, she um, was recruited to be the next chief investment officer at Rockefeller University. So when that happened, I was still at Common Fund. I actually had reached out to her to congratulate her, but then asked, is there anything I can do to be helpful in your new role as you think about um, right. what you want to do going forward? And she said, come on down and let's let's talk about it. You can one come thing, on for me. One thing led to another. Right. And she hired me as her deputy right. Um, right. that same year. Right. And so I was her first kind of new hire. She basically rebuilt the entire team from scratch and and um, you know, it's now been you know, kind of five plus years as part of that partnership, and it has been uh, it has exceeded my personal and professional expectations in a great way. Um, she has been a true partner, and in terms of the way we run the endowment at Rockefeller, she's a big believer in everybody acting as a generalist. So nobody has um, ownership of any specific asset mm-hmm. class or as any particular silo. We actually all own the endowment entirely right. and own that performance. And so when we think of where we might deploy. Uh, the marginal dollar within the endowment. Um, we don't have people thinking, right. uh, fighting for turf battles or what have you. We think about actually where we think it makes the most sense. Right. In other words, people fighting, the venture capital person saying, I, I need we more venture dollars. <laughs> venture and private equity and public. Okay, got it. That's, um, right. that's really interesting. Um, so tell us about Rockefeller University itself. So Rockefeller was established in 1901 uh, by John D. Rockefeller himself. Right as America's very first medical research institute. And so our motto, and we actually converted technically to a university about 50 years ago, so we actually do degree, we grant degrees, um, but uh, we're, we're much less like a traditional university than we are like one, uh, meaning we have no undergrads. Uh, we have about 150 students, if you will. Those are mm-hmm. all doctorate students or kind of postdoc folks. Um, that are all working directly with a scientist in a particular lab. We have around 72 lab heads. So on average, they might have two or three folks uh, working with them for, call it, four to five years. And then they actually graduate. We graduate about 30 folks a year. Um, But nobody pays tuition. With PhDs? With PhDs. Yeah. Nobody pays tuition. Uh, Actually, people are all paid. Uh, They are recruited and paid uh, Mm. to do their graduate work at Rockefeller. And it is our mission is 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 um, simple and it is unwavering and has been since it was founded. Uh, science for the benefit of humanity. So everything that the folks are working on at Rockefeller uh, is is squarely focused on improving the human condition. So we have folks that are lo- that are literally trying to cure cancer. Right. Um, we have one one scientist uh, who actually is working with mosquitoes, trying to find a cure for Zika. Um, we have folks with that are that are working on pardon with CRISPR. Uh, there, there's. I don't know if she in particular is working with CRISPR. But we have several scientists that are doing that. Well, I, I know that she in particular, uh, this scientist is is she's obviously one of our one of our top minds. She made the New York Times earlier this year 
because she's doing something which doesn't happen often in the scientific community, which is she's actually reaching out to work with other scientists throughout the world to find a cure. Most right. folks kind of work in their own little silo, and maybe right. maybe it's systemic to or endemic to to um, to Rockefeller in general, and just in terms of the whole teamwork aspect. Mm. But she's really working out to try to. This is such a, a crucial thing that we need to get right, need to get it right fast. That um, working with some of the best and brightest minds throughout the world to share their research. So talk talk a little bit about how. Uh, the endowment has evolved. The Rockefeller University endowment has evolved over the last um, over the last years. I, I do you do you raise money for the endowment from private donors, or was that endowment originally established by Rockefeller himself, and it continues to exist in in its in that form today? How does how how is that endowment funded? So it, it it absolutely originally you know its roots definitely uh, uh, came 100 percent from right. from John D himself. Um, we have about 50 plus members on our board of trustees, uh, all folks that are primarily from the New York area. Although uh, there's actually uh, at least one that that's on the West Coast in in the venture world. And uh, in terms of how the university itself is funded, uh, roughly in rough numbers, a third of our budget comes from the NIH and other public and private mm -hmm. um, sources of financing, Howard Hughes, uh, other grant money like that. A third comes from um, donations from our, our board, primarily from our board of trustees. You don't certainly have to be on the board mm -hmm. to donate money to Rockefeller, but that's um, primarily, uh, 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 it comes from, from those folks. When, when we're looking for, for you know, board members, we're looking for folks that are dedicated to the mission of Rockefeller, right. which touches everybody in, in, in the human race, which I think is uh, is is amazing because it's as broad as it is, and it never goes out of style. We'll, we'll never there'll always be things that that will afflict uh, us in different ways, and hopefully we'll find cures for the ones that do today, and, and then tomorrow, you know, we'll we'll, we'll do that as well. Um, but when we ask those board members to join the board of Rockefeller, we we ask them that this be their number one or number two philanthropic mm. endeavor um, so that they're they're really dedicated. And, and none of them are alums, as far as I know, of Rockefeller. Uh, they, uh, uh, but they, they truly are in love with the science and in love with, with the accomplishments uh, of what we're being able to do there. And then the last third, roughly, uh, comes from the earnings from the endowment. Right. So in round numbers, we're a $2 billion endowment, um, around 5.5% uh, we clip, uh, which is an, an aggressive rate. Um, uh, Foundations, kind of by law, have to distribute five percent of their assets every year. Mm -hmm. uh, endowments don't have that restriction, so many endowments can actually distribute far less than that okay. and preserve more of the corpus for longer-term growth. In addition, a lot of um, organizations have alumni; they have tuition, but they also have alumni gifts as another source right. of income to help offset that spend rate. Right. Um, typically, our alums uh, they're scientists, so they go off and do wonderful things in the science world, but they typically don't give back money to Rockefeller. Uh, and it's a relatively small alumni base, right? That's if exactly you're only right. graduating 150 a year. That's right. Well, we have 150 folks total, so we graduate about 30 a year. Oh, so wow. it's even smaller. <laughs> okay. Even okay. smaller. And that number has actually grown uh, in, the, in the past decade. So typical endowment, how much of the endowment capital is used every year to fund, like take a Harvard University. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I don't, I'm not asking you to speak specifically to Harvard's endowment, but... Uh, a university like that, how much capital would they spend per year of their endowment? 
typically, let's use round numbers. Yeah. Uh, and there's terrific studies from Common Fund, my old company that in Cambridge Associates, that actually will show you exactly the numbers. But in round numbers, it, it roughly mirrors what foundations do, which call okay. it 5% a year. Okay. And so one of the big challenges uh, for any uh, pool of capital that has a perpetual mission. So when you think about what is the the um, our investment time horizon, right? Uh, it's forever. Right. <laughs> it's perpetuity. Right. We want this organization to survive forever right. and continue to its mission. It's been around for 110 years, and we hope it'll be around forever, not not just for another 110 right. years. So that gives you an idea of what you're, you're dealing with in terms of how careful you need to manage mm. the portfolio. For Rockefeller in particular, we have that kind of, not, not dissimilar from a lot of our peers, but we have that dual mission where we have to grow the endowment because um, not only do we have this kind of the spend rate that that is always there, and we we have one client which is the operations part of the university, yep. uh, and we we account for a pretty large chunk of the budget, so it's, right. that's meaningful um, to everybody that that we actually uh, are able to to manage it responsibly. Um, but we have to overcome inflation as well, uh, and in our business, like like all of our peers, it is primarily there are some very large fixed assets, but in terms of the variable costs, it is it's primarily people. And so when you think about um, uh, uh, wage increases, when you think about healthcare increases and benefit right. increases, uh, those tend to go up at more than the rate of the CPI. So the inflation rate at an organization like us, there are other organizations as well, hospitals, anything that, that's kind of got a big labor or people component to it, they tend to go up by more than simply the CPI uh, measure of inflation. So for us to maintain the purchasing power of the university in perpetuity, we have to be able to invest it um, to exceed our spend rate plus inflation. And again, at an, an inflation number that's higher than I would say the normal. So you spend a little more than 5% every year of the Rockefeller endowment. So that's, let's call it roughly $100 million. Mm -hmm. um, this is maybe a, a, a mechanical detail, but if you're taking that $100 million out, presumably it's, I mean, like it's not coming out of a venture fund because those are very illiquid private investments. Um, I assume that's income generated from other parts of the portfolio. Absolutely right. Right. Absolutely right. And it could be, it could be because um, uh, venture funds, even though they're not, whenever they're, they don't have to be fully wrapped up, but they can distribute distributions sure. from, you know, gains sure. of companies that get sold in the interim. So it, it certainly, that is a, all of it is a source of, right. of liquidity, right. but it is, your point is absolutely right. It is generally um, a lot less liquid than certainly a bond fund or a cash fund or right. even a public equity fund. Right. Um, so, so how do you think about investing the endowment given uh, given the objectives um, and given the time horizon of forever? Yeah, well, it's it's uh, you can't. And, and I would ask, and I would add to that: How do you think that compares? Given that Rockefeller University is different than most universities, how do you think that compares to the other university endowments? Yeah. Uh, so the first point, if you think of um, investments along a spectrum. Uh, where you can think, and on one end of the spectrum, you have the most liquid 
which might be just cash that is sitting literally in a money management account. And in today's environment, you're, you're, it is virtually zero in terms of you, even for an institution right. cash as in the large bank. as right. Uh, or that, under the mattress. That's I right. I assume Rockefeller University isn't keeping too many dollars under the mattress. But. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's, it's a daily liquidity. So Correct. we have access to it on a daily basis. Um, and we are earning virtually zero. Um, you know, it is a slight positive. If we were somewhere in, the, in Europe, it actually might even be negative, uh, which is just a right. scary prospect. Right. Um, but uh, I hate to say we won't ever get there because, you know, you never know. And we've seen plenty of things in, yeah. in our lives that we never thought would ever happen. Um, so putting that aside, the most liquid um, uh, asset class would be just kind of pure cash. And the most, along the spectrum, the most illiquid would be, you know, our category of venture capital, private equity, private real estate, private natural resources. It could be even be co-investments, um, which, you know, have their 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 own discrete, you know, it, it is binary. Either that, yep. that investment either works or it doesn't. Um, but nothing will happen in the interim until, you know, that particular investment either, you know, um, matures or not. And so along that spectrum, one of the ways to think about it, and you have fixed income and you have public equities and, and, and hedge funds, a lot of things in between that are somewhat hybrid where they're, they're semi-liquid, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to either fully liquid or fully illiquid. Fully illiquid is um, you sign a document, you sign a pledge, right. you, you will make the capital calls when they when they come due, and you'll wait for the distributions. Now, even at that end of the spectrum— And that's—you're describing venture capital. That's right. Yes. Uh, now, when you do that, along that same spectrum, you can also put a risk and return uh, axis on that, where, again, at the, at the very far end where it's just pure cash, it should have— very little or no risk. I would say, again, we learned back in 08 that nothing is riskless, including right. even government treasuries, right. uh, depending on how you look at it. Um, but for argument's sake, the most liquid usually is the lowest yielding return and usually the most liquid. And as you move along that spectrum, you move towards things that are less liquid, they are more risky, and therefore, um, all else equal, economics should tell us that they should earn a higher rate of return. Right. That doesn't always happen because we actually, you know, in addition to that, it, it, you know, there is manager selection that's involved as opposed to just pure asset allocation. And some managers are better than others, and and some are successful right. and some are not. Right. So when we think about Rockefeller being around forever, we can't focus strictly on one side of of the spectrum where it's purely the safe easy way to go because we have to continue, we got to take out money every year and we have to replenish it and also hopefully grow it so that we can keep pace with, again, with inflation. So um, we need to manage liquidity from that perspective. Mm -hmm. We need to manage things in somewhat of a conservative way for that part of the portfolio. But likewise, because we need it to grow, we need to be thinking about assets that can actually return certainly greater than cash or greater than fixed income, um, even greater than the public markets. And, and can do it over a long period of time. And so we have to have a healthy, what I like to call a healthy dose of privates. And when we think about liquidity because of who we are, it's precisely because we're a long-term forever institution, we have to think of, of liquidity as one of our most valuable assets. There are so many things that we can't control in this world, but that is one thing that we have. Mm-hmm. And with a perpetual mandate, um, we can take advantage of what, what I would call time frame arbitrage. So precisely because we are able to take money and scroll it away for 15 years, which right. you know, 10 years might be a traditional venture term, but there's, with extensions, it typically goes kind of 15 years before right. every dollar comes out, sometimes even longer than that. Um, but until that actually all comes out, we, we're, we actually are delighted to do that so long as 
that spectrum that I that I described um, is sound. Where so long as the returns are really good, that's right. And we can even we can shoulder um, volatility in the meantime, right. which can be used as a proxy for risk, uh, and and ride those waves, those cycles that will inevitably come. And it's and it's the whole you know we're, we're not again we're not trying to time it ourselves, where we're trying to you know buy low and sell high, but working with managers that. You know, the other way around, they don't have to sell when markets are low, and they don't have mm. to buy when markets are high mm-hmm. because they have um, longer time frames with which to invest the money. When you and um, Amy, correct? That's right. When you and Amy joined Rockefeller, did you have a, a venture portfolio already? We did. You did. Um, so there was an existing portfolio, and I'd be curious to hear uh what what that was and how it's changed since you joined it, or how you think about it. How, yeah. So rough numbers um, of the of the two billion dollars in assets, about a third of it is dedicated to the private strategies, and the other two thirds is dedicated to the public strategies. Again, more liquid doesn't mean they're fully liquid. Obviously, there's a there's a spectrum, but in terms of the privates, about a third um, of the two billion is in is in is in yep. those strategies. Within the venture component, particularly, it's actually now at about ten percent. Uh, which is wow. a lot. That uh, is a lot. And it's it's higher than our policy target. Right. So our policy target is around three percent. It's a lot higher. It's a lot higher. Yes. And and some of that is um, due to legacy uh, exposures. So when we inherited the portfolio in 2011, we had an overweight to the life sciences and and, and venture right. healthcare. Right. And some of the things we talked about a little bit earlier this morning mm-hmm. was. Uh, uh, that seems to a lot of folks that that would make sense because of who we are and what we do for a living that we would actually have an overweight um, uh, to sure. to that area of the market. One of the first things that Amy and I had, had done when we sat down together to look at the entire portfolio and we focused on on this piece, we we kind of we questioned ourselves and said, "Does that make sense? You know, that, that seems like convention, um, seems like what makes sense, but does it really? Uh, do we do we are we better?" venture investors simply because our scientists are trying to cure cancer. Not sure. <laughs> right. And, and how does it actually really translate into right. to our, you know, our and our committee's investment decisions? Presumably you could be, you might not be better, you might be more helpful compared to the average LP in health or medical or related venture funds, correct? I think that is that is correct. That is certainly a thesis. Right. Uh, and does it actually translate? Uh, I think it's it's a little mixed because okay. again, it, it is our scientists. You know, they have a day job and and and, and they're working on things right. that are typically uh, certainly they have amazing perspectives on different things. But the things that they're working on because they're they're really um, supposed to uh, uh, improve the human condition and and generate ideas and understanding that can be shared with the rest of the world uh, in terms of like, general knowledge that other folks can build on. They're typically looking at things and doing their work at a stage that is far earlier in, 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 in either the life of a, of a cure, mm-hmm. either, whether it be a, a drug or, or a medical device or what have you, um, even before the, the earliest of seed investors. Because right. it's not necessarily, the end game isn't necessarily to produce a drug that will cure cancer. Um, the end game might be to understand how a cancer cell feeds itself and, and how that might have a link uh, to diabetes, as yep. an example. So that is a, that's the level that they're, that they're working on and not necessarily the translational piece or the piece that, that gets us um, uh, from understanding to a, to a cure. doesn't mean that can happen. In a lot of cases, uh, that has happened. Um, but that, I would say, is much more the exception than the rule. So when we looked at that and saw that we had this 
in our minds, a massive overweight to life sciences. And we looked at the manager lineup that we had in that particular space. We decided we needed to do two things. Number one was we didn't re- we didn't feel like we had the right managers in that space. Um, so we went and tried to find the ones that we did have. Now, I will say, to your point exactly, who we are and what we do at Rockefeller and our reputation, that um, made the pitch, if you will, like, why would you want Rockefeller as an investor? Right quite easy amongst right. that class right. of groups. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily easy amongst other groups. And we had to, you know, kind of, one of the things we had to do initially was was really sell ourselves. We had to really convince people kind of who we are, what we do for a living, and, and why we'd actually be a good partner. Because a lot of folks had never heard of Rockefeller. They might have heard of other Rockefeller entities. Right. But mm-hmm. in terms of the university, um, you know, there's a lot of aha moments. Right. And so we had to do a little bit of kind of uh, self-promotion just to let people know who we are. Typically, I'm guessing, and when you speak about pitching yourself, you're pitching to, in most cases, very well-established existing venture firms that are on Roman numeral 5 through 10, correct? Or even 15. Or 15, <laughs> yes, yeah, right. That's right, that's right. We had never had any of those. And so on the on the healthcare side, um, we were going to trim, we were going to reduce our exposure overall, and we were going to change the lineup. On the IT side, we had actually had very little exposure on the IT side. So we were right. going to build that. And then you kind of think of who you would do to build that with. We actually had never had discussions with some of those, you know, upper echelon, top brand, uh, you know, high vintage number fund right. groups, uh, which, you know, everybody kind of has their own top five or top 10 or top 20 list. But in nowhere else that we can find and in, in, in where, where actually – that matters, you know, more, it doesn't matter anywhere else except in, in our minds, more so than in venture, yep. um, where those folks actually do have long-standing relationships. They have a long-standing track record. Entrepreneurs want to work with, the best entrepreneurs want to work with them yep. uh, because of their experiences and what they can actually bring to the table in terms of real tangible value add. That matters. Doesn't mean that they're the only game in town, but they certainly are. Um, they, they garner more than their fair share of yep. economic rents. Yeah. So, our first strategy was on the IT side, go after those groups, introduce ourselves, and see what happens. <laughs> see if we can right. actually convince them because these groups are horribly oversubscribed from yeah. their existing investors. They have the absolute uh, top tier uh, peers of ours, um, uh, and they, 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 the last thing they need is another investor. Uh, unless we can convince them that that what we do actually uh, resonates with with what what you know what they believe and kind of you know why, why they do what they do. Second tier was let's if we don't get access to those groups, or even if we do, but it's not as much as we would like. Um, what do we do next? And so we went to the other end of the spectrum, which is the younger uh, right. micro VC groups. That right. kind of you know that, that term kind of started. A lot, it hasn't been around that long, but seed investors and micro VCs. It was much more um, you know when you think of seed folks, you thought of uh, very wealthy individuals that were doing their own money, kind of managing their own account. Then it became a little bit more institutionalized, and then now I think it's actually much more. Uh, mainstream in, yep. in terms of, of of what those folks in the notation, you know, clearly I would say fits in that realm. Yep. Uh, so we went after some of the the newer groups because we said, well, if we can't get into the most established venture firms, how about the the new world order, the, the next, you know, groups that will be those established groups in 10 or 15 years. And then the third prong that we did was said, well, that sounds great, but all these take a long time. It takes um, – uh, 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 a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of shoe leather to convince folks uh, um, that you're a good partner. I think I think there's only so much you can do, but you know, other than time, it just takes time and dedication. At the end of the day, I think GPs, what, what can we do as LPs to really add value? Very little at the end of the day, unless it's 
potential in the co-investment side. Rockefeller, right. again, we might be able to introduce them to right. a lab head that is um, doing work that is particularly relevant. But again, I would call that more the exception than the rule. Um, what we can promise is um, loyalty. And it's not blind loyalty. You know, it, it is a business relationship. So folks need to continue to uh, to earn it. But um, at the end of the day, it, it is not being like fast money where you're kind of in and you're out and yeah. you're flipping things back and forth. It really is dedicated for the long haul and having a time frame, an investment horizon that matches their investment horizon. Yeah. If you earn it, you presumably might stick with them as partners and investors forever. That's right. right. That's right. Um, so... So how'd you do? Well, so, so I was going to mention the last prong to kind of bridge yeah. the gap between today and, and tomorrow, yeah. if you will, was we actually hired a fund of funds. Right. So um, a group similar to what I used to do, a common fund, uh, a group called Greenspring Associates, yep. uh, located outside of uh, outside of Baltimore. And um, that was a group, uh, is a group that I actually sit on their advisory board, uh, who truly acts as a partner. And again, they're both a GP and an LP. So they mm -hmm. they think like we do uh, in terms of making investments directly into partnerships, but they also are a GP because um, we hire them mm -hmm. and, and they work with us. Uh, and when we think about a value-added partner, and I would say I knew exactly what we were looking for because having done that business, I knew what what those right. types of partners and, and Judith, you know, is obviously very similar in that respect. Yep. Judith um, at Weathergate. That's right. Yep. Uh, what what they actually could provide, and 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 again, you know, very similar to my initial relationship with Amy, where it exceeded all my expectations. Um, what Greenspring and their team have been able to do in terms of giving us additional insights, um, helping us to actually gain access to some of the groups that were on our mm -hmm. top tier list, right? Um, to uh, to to help. Um, separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of it's a big space. There's lots of new players emerging all the time. It was an extension of our team. You know, we're five people on the Upper East Side of Manhattan yep. trying to cover every asset class globally. This is a group that is, you know, 30 plus people um, specifically dedicated to the venture space, everything right. about venture, and really act as an extension of our team to help increase our understanding of the space. And whenever we have issues, um, uh, or questions, and, and there's, there's. I just say it's a two-way street. I think they, they would be generous to say, "Oh, we get uh, plenty of insights from you guys." I think they're being overly generous, but we, we like to make our contribution as best we can. But it is very much a dialogue and trying to figure things out together that makes that relationship um, so fulfilling. And the returns have also been great. Yeah. By the way, <laughs> <That's cool. laughs> which, which at the end of the day, that's kind of you know what it all. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, all this you know kind of contributes to. Given your very long time horizons, how do you? assess your your performance at these sort of five and 10 year interv intervals? So uh, the good news about about having a big legacy uh, is that we, you know, there were, there are some Kleiner Perkins funds that we were in, you know, going back to like the mm. 90s. And so, and actually there was, there's a Venrock fund that it was a 1978 fund that wow. was wow. a evergreen fund that actually went to a term fund in 1995. <laughs> is, wow. is that the one that invested in Apple? Uh, that's, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think this is one that's all kind of specifically healthcare, healthcare mm. related. Right. Um, but that fund is now, it, it actually just officially wound up. It is officially done. I think after this next wow. quarter. Wow. Uh, wow. After 22 years wow. since they turned into a wow. term fund, <laughs> wow. let alone just wow. you know, the evergreen portion. So the good news is we can look at those returns and see mm -hmm. kind of how we did. I use the term loosely because it was, it was the prior regime and others um, that contributed to that. And then look at some of the newer things that we've put on the books since then 
and at all different stages. So it's now been, you know, we have a, a bona fide five-year track record since mm -hmm. Amy and I started a right. full five-year track record that we can look to. And we can also look at the contributions on a, an annual basis. And venture has actually, you know, one of the, one of the saving graces that's been one of our largest single exposures in terms of asset classes, but it also has been one of the, one of the highest performing. Right. So that is the good with that. And the bad is it's not all fully realized. Mm -hmm. A lot of those valuations, and you guys see it mm -hmm. all the time, um, are, uh, you know, the valuations are unrealized by their, by their very nature. Are they right? Who knows? They're right today because that's kind of what the market will bear yeah. um, and the market changes. And so uh, we become kind of increasingly concerned about, you know, going back to an original question about uh, where we are today. Yeah. We think there's been an awful lot of money raised. We think there's been an awful lot of money invested and deployed. We think valuations um, have been extremely high. What's similar is that people, it is, does feel like it's a land grab mentality, that it's kind of winner take all or winner take most. Right. That was absolutely the case back in 05 and 06 and 07. A little different is that um, the metrics that people are looking at are not necessarily just eyeballs, but they actually yeah. are customers. Mm -hmm. They are and revenues. Yeah. They are, I mean, these are, you know, Uber, I'm not going to pronosticate one when or not, you know, 60 billion is the right number. But what is undisputed is that they have billions of dollars of revenue. Yep. And they can point to metrics and customers where it is highly recurring. So that has a value. Um, whether or not it's 60 billion, I don't know, but it is, uh, uh, it, it does absolutely have some value. And these are, these are real companies, you know, and these are big behemoth companies. There are plenty at the end of the spectrum that are the unicorns or not, I guess the right. fallen unicorns that right. who knows, you know, it's, it's still kind of to be determined. So that, that has a continuous concern for us because what happens, you know, at that one end of the, of the spectrum has ripple effects to the rest of the market. Yep. And a lot of folks that are at different stages get, can get caught up in that, in that tidal wave if it actually does, does hit. So you work with Greenspring on the fund of fund side, and presumably you've made some investments directly into venture capital firms, uh, both, I guess you described emerging and some of the more established firms over the last five years. Um, what were some of the attributes of those firms that got you particularly excited compared to, you know, the hundreds of firms that are now in market. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question uh, on on the um, the kind of emerging manager side. So Felicis or Felicis mm -hmm. is one of our our top managers in that space in, in Palo Alto, um, uh, founded by a gentleman named Aiden Senkut. Yep. And I think what excited us about about him and what he was doing at a very early stage. We've been with him now for several funds, uh, and they were three people to start. Uh, he was a top you know fifty employee at Google, yep. and speaks seven or eight different languages. He actually opened up, because of that, he opened up a lot of the Google international offices. And so he, he, he not only did have a, a worldview, but, but one of the things that he he looks for is strength in, in diversity. So uh, he has a member of his team who is a Brazilian national. He has a member of his team who is an Indian national. And a mem and he himself is Turkish. Yep. And, and, and they all have language skills and have been throughout you know, the world in terms of their travels and such. And so they, and technology is so interesting because it really is one of the few areas that transcends borders, transcends languages. Uh, we can maybe thank Steve Jobs for that, for, right. uh, uh, for that contribution, bringing technology truly to the masses. And uh, to have that kind of global perspective uh, is really interesting. And, and the way they think of the world, they don't think of what will work in the United States. Right. They think what will work in Europe and what will work in Latin America and what will work you know, ultimately in Asia and Africa. And so um, he was unique. And, and in addition, he he his first couple of funds were actually all of his own money. Yep. 
and all of his own kind of personal investments. And he rolled those over into the, into the first kind of institutional fund. So we think of um, not only of just his worldview and his expertise, we also think about alignment of interests with limited partners. Um, actions certainly speak louder yeah. than words. And he actually was at that time in a very early stage of his career proving, and those, these were assets that were, you know, the value had, had you know, certainly uh, been demonstrated in terms yeah. of the early stage and was able to contribute those um, uh, so that everybody could kind of be on the same basis. So in my, our mind, that was, that, that crossed, you know, two big boxes that we were looking to, looking to check. Uh, fast forward today, I think they've raised now Fund Five. Yeah, and uh, we've yeah. been delighted uh, to be Much associated larger with them. Than fund one or two or three. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and uh, and they brought on their team continues to expand. Yeah. So um, uh, they brought on Wesley Chan uh, yep. from Google Ventures yep. uh, a couple years ago, and they just they just managed to continue to expand their concentric circles, and they were able to get access. You know, at the very beginning, as a, as a seed stage investor, their mission was more to get access to what they thought were the best deals, and they did a terrific job at that. And now as they continue to kind of learn and, and, and uh, evolve their own business, they're starting to lead a lot more yeah. of their own deals and have access to the entrepreneurs. Um, and everybody uh, who's on their team has actually either founded or worked at a startup before. So they can really talk to the entrepreneurs and, and give them real-world experience of things that they've actually done. So that's at one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, in terms of the most established right. uh, names, uh, we added XL Partners and and, uh, and Greylock to our lineup over the last several years. Um, couldn't be more delighted. Again, these are the types of folks that you know, they they don't really need our money for sure. They have they have um, plenty of of access to resources from their existing right. LP base, and so. Um, Part of it is, you know, you have to kind of be invited in if, you know, they, they have to really understand what you do and, and really that has to resonate with them. And thankfully, um, uh, you know, our perpetual mission of science for the benefit of humanity really did resonate with both of those organizations. Um, Were those pre-existing relationships that you or Amy might have had or uh, you got a warm introduction? I mean, how did you, uh, how did you knock on their door? So, um we certainly had known about those organizations. Sure. Uh, from my time at Common Fund, I was not the primary relationship um, sure. person with either of those groups, but you certainly knew of them. You knew of the companies they invested in. You knew who the people were. Um, but it was, uh, dare I say, a cold call. <laughs> right. <laughs> at least with those two organizations. Right. With our, our board of trustees and, and right. other folks within our network have been incredibly generous uh, with other introductions, but at least it's related to those two. Uh, those are ones that we had to kind of reach out. And it wasn't just those two. You know, with those, I'm just talking about the winners. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> there are plenty right. of groups that, that, right. uh, that uh, we didn't, we didn't, we weren't able to break through. Um, but, uh, with those two, we were and and couldn't be more delighted. Uh, and in terms of their track record and their depth of resources and their team and their deal flow, they see everything that they want to see. Doesn't yep. mean they always uh, do uh, every mm-hmm. deal that they want to do, but um, but they certainly see it. And that is again, that's that's the part I think that that is uh, within venture that actually matters. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you guys see it all the time. Um, and and having the judgment, having been through cycles themselves and having survived yeah. and thrived through those cycles. Some of the best companies, I remember a slide that we used to do at Common Fund was we would show um, the NASDAQ and how volatile the NASDAQ over time can be. And then we would have the logos of when various companies were funded. And so I think, and I... And, and I, I can't remember, probably, certainly needs to be updated. I can't remember exactly where folks fell. But as an example, um, Facebook was founded, you know, during the depths of, of the internet yep. bubble mm-hmm. and then kind of came into its own. Uh, and Google was founded, you know, kind of before that during another downturn. So innovation itself, fundamental innovation uh, does not 
um, uh, rely on the public markets in terms of timing. Yeah. It kind of happens when it happens, but certainly the public markets can be a headwind or a tailwind that can extend uh, the lifeline a little bit. But um, uh, those things happen all the time. And it's again, it's another kind of investment maxim where it is so important. Likewise, where we're not trying to time the markets. For this asset class in particular, innovation is always happening. So you right. have to be committed to it and you have to invest across the cycles and not try to um, overweight or underweight. So notwithstanding what I said about do I, am I, am I um, concerned about certain things that are happening in this environment, it's not uh, affecting our pace at all. Um, we are still committing to the space as evenly as we can yep. um, because we we don't know when the next, you know, the next innovation, we, what we do know is, is, you know, the next innovation and big, huge uh, wave uh, is being percolated right now. Yep. Well, shall we be so lucky as to get the cold call from Rockefeller <laughs> University one day? Um, You've already gotten it. <laughs> yes. Uh Thanks so much, Tom. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you for both Thank your you. time. Thank I you. Really, really appreciate your time. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a pre-seed venture capital firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. We'd like to thank Silicon Valley Bank for sponsoring season two of Origins. At SVB, the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, its experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the Silicon Valley Bank team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you liked this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glawe, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.